Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Nature seems to be running out of space as the global human population continues to increase, as sprawl continues to wash over natural areas. The amount of space needed for flora and fauna to thrive, and even in some cases survive, is steadily being squeezed by the human footprint. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Concern for nature is not new, but it seems to be accelerating. E.O. Wilson and his Half-Earth Foundation are working to conserve half the globe's land and sea to safeguard the bulk of biodiversity, while here in the United States, the Biden administration has its 30 by 30 initiative with hopes of preserving half of the country's land and water for nature by 2030. How successful can these initiatives be? What is being done to move the needle, as it were, to see that those goals are met? Today, we're visiting with Christine Tompkins, who knows a little bit about protecting landscapes for nature. She and her late husband, Doug Tompkins, donated more than 2 million acres in Chile and Argentina to those two countries, which in turn were able to create 13 new national parks. We'll be back in a minute with Chris to hear her views on these initiatives. Enjoy a reduced auto loan rate this holiday season with Interior FCU. With rates as low as 1.99% and a quick approval, you could finance a truck, car, or even snowmobile. Dash through the snow and over to Interior FCU for a great rate. For a limited time only, new and used car rates are the same at an all-time low. Interior Federal Credit Union, the official credit union for the Department of the Interior and your natural resource for financial services. Membership is required. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Traveler. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you making time. Now, I believe that Tompkins Conservation has donated more than 2 million acres to those two countries, which added roughly 15 million more acres, and as I said, created 13 new national parks. Are those numbers accurate today? Yeah, we purchased about 2.7 million acres and donated them to the two countries to leverage an additional almost 11 million acres and and then push to have all of that turned into national parks on either side of the border. And I'm guessing that didn't happen overnight now, did it? No, it didn't. 
<laughs> we started off in 1992 and we donated everything we had done up to that point in 2018. And now we're in the middle of several new generation projects. What is a new generation project? Well, for us, it means keep keep doing what we've been doing, acquiring terrestrial territory, but now really looking at the marine side. So how do you how do you not only acquire terrestrial lands to leverage more land to tie together to create very large landscapes, but but also adding the marine, system into all of this just the way we did land all these years so we're working on a few projects now that involve land acquisition but also leveraging um, marine systems as part of our relationships with governments and certainly that's incredibly crucial because of the the rich biodiversity that you can find in those marine environments yeah, especially down where we are, you have this great cross point of the Pacific Ocean meeting the Atlantic Ocean from the east and the waters from Antarctica coming up. So the southern cone along both coasts, Chile and Argentina, are incredibly rich. And so we're concentrating on the coastal waters, zero to 12 miles, sometimes 13 to, to 24 why Chile and Argentina? Well, it really had most to do with my husband, Doug, who was a ski racer, training down in Chile and Argentina in the early 60s in the off season. Okay. And penniless, he would hitchhike around both countries and uh, he really fell in love with them. And then in 1968, my friend and my boss, Yvonne Chouinard and Doug drove from San Francisco down to the tip of Argentina and with some friends to climb Fitzroy, which mm -hmm. is one of the emblematic peaks down there. And the territory never really lost its power over both Doug and Yvonne. And so when Doug decided to leave his business life, he went back down into Chile and Argentina to look at what might unfold for him down there. And then uh, a year later, I followed. <laughs> I retired from Patagonia and followed. Now, in, in Chile, I believe your work has led to uh, establishment of parks and expanded protected areas that combine, knit together the root of the parks, which I, I think is a 17-park network ranging more than 1,500 miles. That, that's incredible. How did that vision come about? Well, as we were working down there for so many years, we, of course, all of the team members in both countries are from local, they're all Chileans and Chile and Argentines and Argentina. And so the root of parks began to come together as an idea. There are 60 some communities from Portamont down to Cape Horn. And um, as you say, the 17 parks, and we, we thought, how do you link all of that together to create something that's larger than any of the towns or the parks themselves? Because you're talking about really isolated territory. The far, the southern third of Chile is really wild. 
And it's not all connected by road. You have to get on ferries, get off, go down the road, get on another one. Anyway, so before Doug died, we began to talk about, well, what if you link them all together and form a story about 1,500 miles in these parks and these 60-some communities? And so Doug died more or less around this time, and we just picked it up and ran with it. And today, the government holds the Ruta de los Parques as one of its chief touristic high points. And it's extraordinary, the power of just imagining something new for an area that's rich in culture and obviously biodiversity. Now, here in the United States, of course, um, you've got the Appalachian Trail, which roams roughly 2,000, 2,200 miles. Yes. But you can you can hike the, the AT and, and look off and see towns and cities and whatnot, and, and you, you still have, in some cases, urban sprawl. Is it like that along uh, the route of the parks, or is it no. totally, totally <laughs> no. wild? <laughs> Well, you're 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 in your car. I mean, you can do it in a lot of ways. You can get on where you like and get off where you like, which is a little like the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail. But you can drive the whole 2,800 kilometers. And so you are going through these towns. You are meeting the kids and eating the food and taking horseback rides and and uh, little ferries to get across lakes and. The whole process is an adventure of itself. And that's before you get into the national parks. And so I think it's become a beloved thing to do because first of all, it's relatively new and you can really pull on your suspenders if you've done the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it links people together in an extraordinary way, much beyond what we imagined when we came up with it. And I, I work on a lot of other conservation projects and everybody asks me about this thing. I, I really believe that when you understand that you can't have conservation without local and regional economies being benefited and local peoples benefiting from it, a hundred years from now, those parks may not exist. Mm-hmm. And so this strategy of root of parks went along with that understanding we had from the very beginning that you can't just go out, preserve something and hope for the best. You have to work for the durability of them. So it really blends together both the the natural world as well as the culture. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, to, to be really cold about it, the economic development in in towns and villages where ranching as a as a style of life like almost everywhere in the world is not dead but it's shrinking mm. and so we have to change with the times and what it means to be participatory in the area of conservation and at the same time i'm i'm guessing um the economy lifts up the the local the local population. I know um, some years ago, my wife and I were down in in Belize, and we stayed at um, some of the the Coppola resorts down there. 
and they had hired some of the locals as naturalists. And we spent, you know, two or three or four days with this um, gentleman who was an incredible birder. I mean, what, what he could show us. And one day we had, we had stopped by his, his home. He had to pick up something. And you could see the improvements he was able to make with his home with this income. And it was surrounded by, you know, homes that, you know, were obviously not as affluent. And so we, we really need to provide that economic security for the locals to benefit the landscapes, I guess. Yes, of course, that's central. But the other thing is you can't, you can't create these, especially large-scale territories, without the geniuses of the place. The Patagonia National Park a project that we donated in 2018, which is now just shy of 800,000 acres, there is no world where we could have really managed the lands as we were acquiring them, take down 500 miles of fence line, uh, start a rewilding project for, for pumas and foxes and waymul deer and niyandus without the geniuses of the place. So it's not a, the, the partnership starts the day you write the check and you buy the first piece of property because it's completely foolish and unimaginable that you could do this, especially as two foreigners, just never going to happen. Now, I'm curious, um, regarding your work in those two countries, are you, are you pleased with how the parks are being managed and operated? I mean, it's kind of like um, you, you, you've nurtured these places like you nurture children, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you send them out into the world and you wonder how they're going to get on, so to speak. Well, it's absolutely true that, uh, especially in the parks where we left them turnkey ready, all of the infrastructure, and I mean all of it, campgrounds, restaurant, lodge, trails, they, they never get taken care of the way you were before you donated it. But you know that going in. I mean, part of what you're trying to do is to establish a model that future parks can, can aspire to it's like the United States. Am I happy with the way U.S. parks are treated and maintained? No, absolutely not. But the fact is, they exist. Mm -hmm. And that in our case, in all 13 national parks, they're visited. People, especially by, by citizenry of both countries. And I think that they will be defended just like the U.S. national park system, somebody tries to go cut trees out of Olympic National Park again, there'll be a fight about that. And that's what has to happen, that people have to realize that these are the jewels of their country, wherever they are, and that are they going to be maintained the way you'd hope? Not necessarily. Are they trashed? No far from being trashed, but they exist. And over time, parks with their own muscle begin to take shape who they are, how they speak to its visitors and how visitors are impacted when they walk out the front gate of those parks. And really 
you just have to create an atmosphere where they're, they benefit all life. And they can't do that on their own in the beginning. And you have to augment that and work at that and build them into the culture of any country. I'm curious if you have a, a feel for the, the state of the national park movement globally. I understand in Australia, Gardens of the Stone National Park was just recently expanded, but at the same time, Blue Mountains National Park is at risk of a proposed dam project that would inundate parts of that World Heritage Area. Oh, I think that all conservation territories are at risk as, you know, we're in this perfect frightening storm of rising human population, rising consumption, and a fall, a falling scale of nature, what it can produce. So I think very harshly that conservation areas will be ever more at risk as we go forward. It's just mathematics. Out in the South Pacific, there is a huge marine protected area. I believe it, it's actually no take. And one of the heads of the countries who share this enormous area just decided that it could no longer afford the luxury of having that mammoth area, a no take zone. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think about all the time. When I saw it in the Guardian a few weeks ago, I thought, there it is. There's no, there's no fanfare. There's no, there are no tears. It's just someone running a country somewhere feels like what they have protected that may have been from 20 years ago is just a luxury today and they have to reverse that decision. And I think that over time, it's going to be more and more the case that conservation of territories will be, be seen as a luxury that we just can't afford. I think people are thinking this all over the world. <laughs> but, at, but at the same time, um, in the last, gosh, we're going on two years now since COVID took hold, and we saw that great outpouring of, of people to the outdoors. Absolutely. Fresh, fresh air. Absolutely. You know? and, and I guess I'm, I'm wondering, you know, are they gaining an appreciation of nature and everything that's at risk, or it's of the moment? You know, we need to get out of our houses and, and once COVID goes away, you know, we'll go back to the way we lived and the way we recreated and we'll forget about all the splendors of the outdoors. Oh, I don't think so. I don't, you know, there have been waves just like the stock market when people are really attached to the outdoors. The 70s, you couldn't sell enough sleeping bags and tents for everybody who thought they needed one. Mm -hmm. It's It's cyclical. I think over time, of course, more and more people will be visiting their parklands, be it national parks, state parks. I think that will always grow. I just worry that the, at a higher altitude, the stress of forests needing to be cut and all the fish needing to be caught and all of those daily pressures will move to put a lot of pressure on the, the, the museums that we've all created for local, state, provincial, national 
monuments. So that's why it's so important that, I don't know, four or five million people visited Yosemite this year or last year. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I hope it's 10 million people out there visiting in a reasonable way, because then you sort of build an army to protect these things that we love and protect those things, find other solutions other than to go back and eat around the edges of areas that have been conserved. I think that pressure has to stay on at a very high level to leave them alone. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about pressure at national parks in a little bit. We're talking today with Chris Tompkins of Tompkins Conservation about biodiversity and her barking dogs and uh, nature. And we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experiences in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at GTNPF. Org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kejimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. All right, we're back with Chris Tompkins talking about nature and biodiversity across the world. Now, Chris, Tompkins Conservation is viewed as an international leader in restoring natural ecosystems and reintroducing wildlife that has disappeared from a region because of human pressures. I've often wondered whether national parks can help slow the sixth mass extinction by providing you know, the habitat that they need to survive, though I've been told that here in the United States that's not likely because of the fragmentation of landscapes. Am, am I overly optimistic about the role parks can play? Not at all. In fact, that's not true. It's just not true that it's too fragmented. There are plenty of places in the United States where, especially keystone species, if they're missing, 
can come back and they have to come back. If anybody's talking about healthy ecosystems, you cannot achieve that without keystone species back. I, I have always thought that the US Park Service should be shifted around to include as part of their responsibility to rewild their parks of key species. And I'm, um, I always get my ears batted because it's not inside the national parks at raison d'etre, that it's fish and wildlife, whatever it is. But there has to be eventually, and I think there will be an assumption that large carnivores are coming back. You need to park the wringing of your hands and worrying, oh, it's unpopular, it's scary, babies will be lost and so on and so forth. And just say, they're coming back. The question is how, how do you do it and when? And I'm a big proponent of this. You can tell by the tenor of my voice. Sure. It is a, a real gap in conservation thinking in North America, including Canada, that there is this assumption or abdication that they're gone and the thought of them coming back is too radical. And if you look at, of course, the emblematic version of this is bringing the wolves back to Yellowstone and, and as they disperse and, and how heavily they're being persecuted in Idaho and Wyoming and Montana. And California. Yeah. Or Oregon. Yeah. And, and, and this is myth. This is um, human fear that is unwarranted. It's, it's emotional. It's, uh, it's political. Of course, they kill some sheep every so often and a few cows. But if you really are serious about the long-term health of a country, you have to have the full complement of species back and thriving. You know, you just you just opened up a lot of a lot of issues that we could we could talk the rest of the day on. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, you know, what is the Park Service's role? Is it uh, preservation of wild places or is it um, recreation? And you can get a lot of um, arguments both way on that and how they manage wilderness. Um, and then you know, talking about the the Keystone carnivores, for instance, and what's going on in Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana right now with uh, the grizzly bear. Yes. You know, it's, and, it, and unfortunately it is political because we, we see with the changing administrations, the, the pendulum swings back and forth. And it seems like just when some progress is being made that you lose it with the change of administrations and change in philosophy. You have in many cases, a very small minority of people who are often engaged in ranching, which everybody knows is a shrinking lifestyle. I know because I'm the fourth generation of a ranching family. We grew up on the family ranch. And even our grandparents insisted that none of our parents be ranchers only 
because they could see the writing on the wall. And you have good people, good ranchers, good people of the land who are out there with their, the last fears. It's like their last frontier of them having control over their, their lands. And um, I understand it. I've seen it. I've seen it over and over again, and certainly in our own family. But eventually, we have to look at what is the greater good for a country, for a state, for long-term health, and at what cost. You lose a few head of livestock. We all know that the studies show that's not that high. And what are the real fears? You know, there's a, a, an experiment, if you want to call it that, up in Montana. I'm sure you're aware of the American Prairie Reserve and what they're trying to do in terms of bringing back uh, not just bison, but the, the full complement of native species that uh, coexisted and evolved alongside bison um, and what can be done in that regard. And, of course, the, uh, the Interior Department is, uh, has its uh, bison conservation initiative that Dirk Kempthorne started back in, I think, 2008. Two exciting um, experiments moving forward. Um, you can see the pushback that the folks at American Prairie Reserve are getting, but at the same time, you know, I was up there a couple of years ago um, working on a project, and they were telling me that, you know, the grizzly bears are coming back, you know, not in big numbers, but they've, you know, a couple. And wolves, of course, are, are crossing their properties. And then you look at the, um, the national grasslands that the Forest Service maintains, and you think about the possibilities of what could be. Certainly, there's a lot of hard work that needs to be done, but if you could somehow transfer a lot of those acres into, I don't want to call them nature preserves, but, but the, way, the way they evolved and, and returned, you know, the bison and, and the big carnivores and, and all the, the complementary species, you know, from the birds to the native vegetation, you know, it could be a healthier landscape. And, um, you know, I think Ted Turner has, has demonstrated that you can ranch with bison. Yes, so. there are a lot of examples of that now. Yeah, you know, in many cases, sometimes it's just a lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and as Jared Diamond always says, culture always trumps common sense. Hmm. I've read a lot about the collapse of civilizations as a hobby and and I really see that in so many cases, and I'm sure I'm I'm my own worst en- enemy along with everyone else. But some really wonderful woman said once, landscape without wildlife is just scenery. And that's what I think about when you go into national parks or really any kind of conservation area and you, you can feel not only see, but you can feel when working hard to bring back all the neighbors who should be using that park as their home base. You know it. You go camping. You don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to pack your food away. You don't have to, you know, you're the top dog as a human. And I think this distracts and takes away from what it means to be human. I think the the sense of wholeness when you understand up in Alaska that you have to be mindful, you have to have your 
your head screwed on to go out and go camping and be mindful and listen and watch and get in there as as one of the beings not at the top of the food chain. And this is what makes us human and gets your blood boiling. And so I don't believe in conservation just in terms of territory. It's certainly for us, we don't believe, and probably starting 20 years ago, anywhere we work, we have to ask the question, who's missing? Mm -hmm. Who's supposed to be here? And is they're not here. And then do the work, which we have found out over the last 15, 18 years, is really work, which is bringing them back. And we have, we work with 13 species now, including jaguars, the first jaguar reintroduction anywhere, I think. And, um, it's not for the faint at heart, but through the mistakes we've made and so on, we have had terrific success with unbelievable team members and, and, and it's palpable. When you feel like you're out in nature, becoming more of what it was always meant to be or was before we arrived. No, I think you're absolutely right. I've um, been fortunate enough, or maybe I'm old enough, that um, I, I experienced Yellowstone before they brought the wolves back, and um, after the fact, and we were in the backcountry, um, deep uh, down the south arm of Yellowstone Lake, and we woke up one morning to a course of wolves before dawn, and it was just the most magical, magical experience we had. Um, Wonderful. This past uh, summer, uh, my wife and I, with a couple of good friends, were kayaking again in Yellowstone Lake, and we realized um, one morning that a grizzly bear had visited our camp and gone through. And, you know, you think of those moments, and it, it's like you said, we're not the top dog, but it, it, it enriches the experience and, and really reminds us what wilderness should be like, I think. Oh, yeah. I, I have no doubt. When we... And then just almost a year ago, January 6th of 2021, after 10 years of work, we released the first three jaguars back into the wild where they had gone missing in the 1930s and then released another set of three uh, two months later. And I, I, you don't go outside anymore the way you went outside on January 5th, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. because uh, even with a cat like jaguars who don't really want trouble, they're like cougars. They're not, they're not like Bengal tigers or Siberian tigers who are looking for a snack toward humans. But still in all, on the morning of January 6th, you will never go out of your tent or your house in that territory as you did the day before. And that's yeah. a, an extraordinary feeling. And so, you know, half of our work now is rewilding. Well, I want to ask you about that, the jaguars in, in particular. Can they reestablish a native population there without human intervention? I, I ask that because at Isle Royal National Park, um, the National Park Service had to import wolves 
in a form of genetic rescue, a project that raises the question of whether that park is turning into an open-air zoo that the National Park Service will have to actively manage. Well, if I understand your question, in, in our case, when we decided to really make a serious attempt to bring jaguars back to this two million acre park, we, we knew that just finding individuals to start with would be one of the big challenges. And also this had never been done before. So anytime that you're, you're working on something new, you have to establish regulations with nation states next door with, in this case, Argentina, and then with the province and then locally. So you, you have to establish a full regulatory network that didn't happen before. You can't just move wild animals around and, and zoo animals. Anyway, as I said, the jaguars took 10 years and we couldn't, we had three years just of genetic work and finally, we were able to acquire uh, three jaguars from zoos. And of course, they would never be the ones released. They would, it was, we built this very large jaguar breeding center because we knew at that time, Brazil didn't want to donate any jags, nor did Paraguay, nor did Bolivia. And the, they would be the three countries to do so. So long story short, the, we, after many years, Brazil really became a wonderful partner in this. They could see that we were very serious. We were making progress. We had cubs, which uh, was a minor miracle. And the long and short of it was 10 years into it, we released a semi-wild female with two wild cubs. They were born at the breeding center, but in a 75 hectare pen, there's no human contact, no meat delivered to their mother, nor to them. She was a hunter, they became hunters. And so the strategy was to release the mother right at the time, three months old, that the cubs could exit with her, but they were too young to travel very far. So this anchored her in a really good way. And it worked so well, the second mother, also with three month old cubs was released. And now all six of them are hunting and free. And now we're about to release a male from Brazil because of course the genetics of all of this have to be really well understood, documented and so on. And we have another national park, Impenetrable, where we have uh, one of the zoo mothers, uh, two cubs, a wild mate. The first time that a wild jaguar had mated with a captive animal, semi-captive. So our, our hope is that over, over time, we have many more individuals, but that we also have to work on disbursement territories and so on. So like a lot of things in, in our lives, uh, it's never really over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How big of a territory do they, do they have? Um, right now, the ones released, Yeah. they have about 750 
thousand acres of no conflict zone. Wow. And then they have up to 2 million acres to cruise. But the, the reason this was possible is that in their absence over 90 years, the prey base exploded with capybara, alligators. So it's going to be quite a long time before the jaguars who are free are going to be forced to disperse because mm -hmm. they have this mammoth area and a prey base that is really without par. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really fascinating. It'll be interesting to watch. I know, um, you know, in Florida, we've got the, the Florida panther and the, the struggles that it is trying to overcome. And um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has yet to designate critical habitat for the Florida panther. Yeah, it's it's astonishing. I, yeah. I don't get me started on that one because <laughs> okay. it's, it's not difficult. It's a decision. It's an ethical decision and it's a strategic decision that the United States 50 years from now should have its full complement of species at least the ones who've not gone completely extinct today. Mm -hmm. And once you make that decision, then it's just strategy. There was a study back in the 70s, I believe it was. Um, this researcher looked at national parks to measure how much of the native species had gone away, had been driven out. And I think it might have been Yosemite, it might be another park, had lost 40%, I think of its native species. So here we are decades later and there's still missing pieces in the puzzle. So oh, if you talk to Ed Wilson, of course, he'll tell you that it's, the loss has been much higher than that. Of course, it depends on what, what area you're talking about, sure. but it's sure. a crisis. It's a major crisis. And it's the tiny species, individuals, whom we don't know much about, or we don't, we aren't forced to think about them that really will change the nature of how we live. And um, conservation groups, and I always include ourselves in this, we have to change the way we look. What does conservation mean? And it has to become the goal of creating fully functioning ecosystems before you turn the lights out. And you can't do that without bringing back everyone who's gone missing, who are possible mm -hmm. to bring back. You can't separate out territory and, and species. You know, given your extensive global travels and your experience of the geographies and the cultures across the world, do you think that the espoused goals of conservation today to protect 30 by 30 or 50 by 50 um, are realistic and feasible? Or are we going to see these islands of biodiversity scattered across the globe that we have to physically manage? Oh, I think it's both. Yes, I, I know it's possible. I'm not worried about it being possible. Is it going to be fragmented even at 30%? Absolutely. Some tiny places are essential to save. Some mammoth ecosystems can be saved and nobody loses a paycheck. Nobody, nobody dies. Nobody 
you know, they're, the mapping for this now is so sophisticated. I see it. I look at it all the time. And you can know if you're going to go out and spend $100 million on territory or marine work, you know exactly in terms of biodiversity, levels of threat, and, and so on, where to put your money. You, you, they have sliced and diced the globe in such a way that for us as conservationists, it's really helpful because you can talk about 30-30. You can even talk about 50% saved and, and not scare the bejesus out of everybody. And I think it's really important never to have that discussion in the absence of talking about what happens if we don't. Of course, half earth sounds extraordinary, even for someone like me. <laughs> but the larger fact is in the absence of voluntarily going for something that audacious, human life is really in danger of tremendous suffering. And as Sir David Attenborough said on the first day of COP a few weeks ago, and, and I know so many people ask me about this, well, do you think climate change, you think it's coming? And I always say, it's here. And as Sir David said much more articulately, there are millions, if not a billion people who are suffering from the effects of climate chaos right now. And they're the very people who have no say in it. And they're the very people who can't afford to move away from these territories where there is drought or where there is flooding or these extreme circumstances. So I, I think we have to always talk about 30 by 30, half earth and what's taking place already that they should be discussed as a package, not as singular pie in the sky goals. Because if you can't recognize the danger and the velocity of what's taking place already, those goals will seem petty and luxurious and, you know, pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. And they're not, they're, they're necessary. So you can start going in that direction voluntarily, or you're going to be hauled in that direction because you have no choice. And I would rather Imagine us doing it voluntarily with a lot of pressure behind us so that we have the time to do it methodically and right based on science, ecology, social issues, cultural issues. That's what I think about 30 and 50. Yeah, yeah. They're all tied together for sure. They are. Well, Chris, thanks so much for your time this morning. It's been great discussing these issues. Like I said, I'm sure we could go on for, for several more hours, but... Um, uh, right now, that's impossible. Um, thanks for your time and everything you could do. Is there um, a website folks can go to to follow what yes. you're doing in South America? You can follow us at TompkinsConservation.org. You can also follow us, especially on Rewilding at RewildingArgentina.com, I think it is, and Rewilding Chile. Uh, 
dot com or it might be dot org anyway sure give them both a try yeah. is there a rewilding us well i i'm sort of the center of that right now <laughs> so if you go to tompkins conservation dot org um yeah you'll see a lot of stuff okay thanks so much for joining us today chris oh, i appreciate thank it you guys all the best That was our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. There perhaps has never been as critical a time when it comes to the future of nature and biodiversity as what we're facing today. Learn more and see how you can get involved with not just protecting nature and biodiversity, but expanding its place in the world. Next week, we'll be joined by Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Bringle from the National Parks Conservation Association to look back at 2021 and top stories from the National Parks and the National Park Service. That should be an interesting discussion. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.